one of the things you see when you read through the Gospels, and especially in the Gospel of John, as, the Gospel, as John actually took the time to tell us that the reason that he wrote his Gospel was so that people would come to faith, and by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, they might have life in his name. He said that many other things that Jesus did that he didn't write in the book, but the ones that he wrote down, he wrote down you know, for the purpose of convincing his audience and bringing them to, to faith in the Lord Jesus. And uh, so I think one of the things you see is that as you read through the Gospels and you read about all of these encounters that people have with Jesus, uh, and they, they, even though they're all different from one another, they all have a very similar theme. And that basic similar theme is that person comes, encounters Jesus, and is never the same again. I mean, that's really what it boils down to. And, and I have to say that each one of us should have that experience initially, kind of like a first time where we meet Him and where we come to faith. And I think we should have that experience in an ongoing way. I think our lives day by day, should be encountering Christ daily and, and even on a more micro kind of way, moment by moment, encountering Jesus and having that relationship with Him really define our day-to-day -day life. We know that coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ initially is what seals our salvation. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And, and you know, the person who has their heart opened by God to, to faith and to, and to love the Lord Jesus and to trust in Him, to bring, come to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus, they're in that moment sealed with the Holy Spirit and, and, and like the great the great conflict is done. Where we were at enmity with God, now we're at peace with God. Where we were aliens from God, now we're reconciled with God. But it goes on from there, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't like the, doesn't like the experience with Jesus, shouldn't the experience with our Lord Jesus go on day by day? I mean, I know that we just sang, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. And it will be. But it shouldn't be like, you know, we get saved, and then we go through life, and then we just we just like kind of accept that when we're with the Lord, it's going to be this like amazing shock that we're going to be stunned that we're even there. And it, like like it shouldn't be necessarily quite like that. I mean, of course we're going to be blown away and on our faces and you know casting our crowns at His feet and all these other things. But 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 it should be that the experience of being a subject in the kingdom of God is experienced and lived now. Amen. That's so important. That's so important. We're subjects in a kingdom. And we ought to be having these day-by-day, moment-by-moment, personal encounters with the king himself, by faith. Right? You know, when Jesus, after he rose from the dead, Thomas was like, no way, man, I'm going to believe that unless I see him, unless I touch the nail prints and all the spear where it went inside and all this. And then, you know, over a week goes by and then Jesus appears to him and like he gets to see, he gets to touch and it's a beautiful moment. My Lord, my God. And, and Jesus doesn't say, hey, you know, he doesn't like compliment him. He doesn't really rebuke him harshly, but he gives a great teaching in that moment. And he says, blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. And, and, and down through the centuries, our experience with Christ is exactly that. We're not looking upon him with our eyes. But we are gazing upon Him with the eyes of our hearts when we look into the Scriptures and we see Him and we learn of Him. Right? That, uh, that beautiful piano medley that Amy played for us, uh, kind of feathered into it there was a, a refrain, I think, if I heard it right, from uh, uh, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Wasn't that part of it? And, you know, and, and the lyrics of that say, the refrain, say, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full. Look full into His wonderful face and, when, and, then, and then what? The things of earth 
they grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. When we look into it, when, 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 we, when we encounter Him on that daily basis, and we look into His Word, and we get before Him in prayer, and everything else gets pushed aside, and it's just about Jesus, what happens is the cares and affairs and discouragements and temptations of this life, they just fade away because His grace and His glory and His presence and the joy of walking with Him is so powerful, it just makes those things fade. Not that they're ever going to stop being tempting. Not that there's ever going to stop being trouble as long as we're here. But this, this encounter with Jesus should not just be going to church on Sunday. This encounter with Jesus should not just be, I got saved and now I'm just living a life that is a, a complete mirror image following pattern habit by habit, experience by experience. The lost, doomed for destruction world around me. I mean, ought it not to be different? Amen. The experience of the encounter with Jesus when we first meet Him, and the encounter with Jesus day by day. Walk with Him. Right? It's a walk with Him, an encounter with Him. So anyway, we went through, and we went through these, um, these verses. And a lot of these are going to be familiar to you. But what we want to look at is how these people met Him and were never the same. And what I want you to do is listen and I want you to evaluate your own experience with Him. I want you to evaluate your own relationship with Him. And, 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 and kind of take a hard look at yourself. Let God show you like kind of where you're at in your relationship with the Lord. And see, are there things you need to push out of your life so that you really are truly encountering Him on a daily basis? This should not be some humdrum, dry, routine just like religious experience. That, as you'll see in a couple of these passages, actually has the opposite effect of what we're looking for. But we ought to look at our own lives. Let God's Word show us the reality of, of, of really experiencing Him. And then long for it. And then go after it. Look full in His wonderful face. Let us pray. I want you in John chapter 5 and verse 1. John chapter 5 and verse 1. And let's pray together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, dear Lord God, I pray that you would help me to share these things succinctly and in a way that would touch our hearts and, and teach us things and challenge us, refine us, even rebuke and correct us. Dear Lord Jesus, You made it clear. You said that the person that finds their life here and now loses it, but the person who loses their life for your sake finds it. So it's, if I understand your words, dear Lord, it's, it's like a full commitment of our lives to you. A humbling of ourselves. Like John the Baptist said, you must in, we must decrease, you must increase in us. May we please, Lord, encounter you new and afresh and daily, frequently. You are what we need. You are all we need. You are our all. And we pray that we would see this in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, John chapter 5 and verse 1. Each one of these six sessions that we did took 45 minutes. So, I guess that means the sermon today is going to be, what, about four hours long? If, if I'm going to properly get through it all. You're laughing. That's good. No. Um, let's just read here. Ready? I'm going to try to like sum just summarize and give you a synopsis of the whole thing. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool which is called in Hebrew Bethesda. Is that, is that one of the places you can see in Jerusalem now? Paul, Stacy? Can you see the pool, the pool of Bethesda? Is that one of the places that's still like known? I don't know if it's known or not. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That might be. I thought I had, I thought I had read a, couple, a few years ago that that's a fairly recent unearthing. 
you you reading these things and they're right there. I'm sorry that that blew. I told you I was delirious, but that but that blows me away. Anyway, so there's this pool by the sheep gate, and it's called Bethesda, and it has five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now, a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, Praise God that you can walk again. Oh no, that's not what it says. It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. And said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So, what's great about this passage of Scripture, and there's a lot, is that first the scene, we're told, is that by this pool of Bethesda, it comes up later in the passage, but you see that there was a multitude there. Right? Some of that multitude might have been because of the religious holiday that was going on that the beginning of the passage told us about. But the idea, I think, mostly is that the multitude was there because there were a lot of sick people who were there. And there was this thing. Now, uh, John here doesn't say, is this like actually an authentic thing or is this just the tradition that people believed? Was this really happening that... like? you had this multitude of people just hanging around the five porches of this pool and then like an angel would come like invisibly I guess and actually shake up the waters and then like everyone made a mad dash to the pool and the first one who like got into the pool was healed of their sickness. I have to tell you that everything that I've come to know as a Christian leads me to believe that that's more of a description of what the tradition was than what was actually going on, right? Because it sounds more to me like one of these modern televangelist schemes, you know, where the TV evangelist says, just send me a certain amount of money, and, and then they bring them up into the front, and you've got the cameras, and you've got the light, and they, and they tell people you're healed, and, and they get people to jump up and run around and all these things, and it's like, you know, and, and then you find out a couple of weeks later that the person died or, or, you know, or, or something like this. And there's, there's story upon story about story about all this. It also doesn't make any sense to me that there would be a system in place where God was healing people in a really desperate, competitive kind of way like that when Jesus was right there, you know, who was like kind of walking around. So... I'm, I'm kind of looking at this as sort of a picture of the way the people were kept in like a religious kind of darkness and a religious kind of oppression. There was a tradition that this, that this happened. That's the kind of the way that I look at it. And I even looked at it in a, such a way that you can see these things as representative of what's really going on in the world. You know, you can see the, the people hanging around the pool. What? As like sinners. Because by our sin, we're all sick. This was a guy who had an infirmity. It's not, we're not told exactly what it was, but whatever the infirmity was, it caused him not to be able to move. Right? So, but in any case, he had been sick like this for 38 years. There's also some indication that perhaps some of his actions led to this sickness because Jesus tells him later, don't sin anymore lest the worst thing come upon you. 
It's certainly not true that every time a person has a condition or a sickness, it's because of their sin. That is absolutely not true. But it certainly is true that you reap what you sow. And sometimes there are people who have sicknesses or certain conditions because of the choices they've made with their lives. Right? So just leave that at that. But that seems to be the situation with this fellow. And so he's there, and he's by the pool, and he knows of this situation. You know, and just to flesh out the, the illustration again, you see that the, 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 the pool and this stirring of the waters, if, if the sick people all around the pool represent all of the sinners of the world, then the pool itself represents what? It represents all the religion of the world. All of the things that people try to do to get themselves well. And then there's a third factor in all this, and what's that? The Messiah. The Messiah who busts in, and regardless of everything else is going on, listen, this guy didn't cry out for Jesus. This guy, Jesus cried out for him. Right? Jesus came into the midst of this scene and walked right up to this guy, we're told. He saw him lying there. You see God's omniscience in knowing already the condition that he had been in for a long time. And Jesus in verse 6 approaches him and says, Do you want to be made well? And I love the sick man's answer. It's just simple honesty. Sir, he says sir, so he obviously doesn't recognize who he's talking to. I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming in, another steps down before me. And then Jesus says to him, what? Rise, take up your bed, and walk. Just like Jesus busts in, just like the gospel busts in to the sinner's life and into the sinner's attempts to justify himself religiously before God, the gospel breaks into that and shows us the truth. So Jesus here breaks into this really, you know, one of the questions I asked the kids were, well, how does this scene make you feel? Just tell me how it makes you feel. And, and at first, maybe they didn't quite understand the question, but when I kind of made it clear, then they start raising their hands and saying, kind of sad. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel too. You've got this multitude of sick people laying around, desperately fighting and scratching to be the first one to get in this pool. That's like a picture of the religion of the world. Accomplish this religious ritual. Fulfill these sacraments. Fulfill these obligations. Fulfill these holy days. Say this many prayers of this type. Make this many confessions. Go to this many masses. Right? Do these deeds to the infidels. Listen. Don't eat this. Don't touch that. Don't do this on this day. Don't do that. And it goes on and on and on and on. Like, when the water stirs, be the first one to get in and you'll get healed. Listen, Jesus doesn't stand back from that and let it go on. Jesus bursts into it and says to the guy, you want to be made well? The guy answers, I have no one to put me in the pool. Jesus doesn't even respond. He says, rise. And then what does he say? This is very important. He doesn't just say rise and walk. Does he? What else does he say? Rise and pick up your bed and walk. Why would Jesus say pick up your bed? Because one of the things that the religion did to keep people oppressed was told them things like, you can't carry your bed on the Sabbath. So this whole controversy that arises after this is caused by Jesus deliberately saying to the man, pick up your bed and walk. Amen. Right? So you can see the respect, tongue-in-cheek, sarcastic. You can see the respect for that Jesus has for religion. Because the religion has been keeping people in blindness, and it still does. So Jesus says, rise, take up your bed and walk. Immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, as I said, it's the Sabbath. You can't carry your bed. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. The guy couldn't move for 38 years. And what we care about is that he's carrying his bed on Saturday? Yes. 
Apparently. So he says, now watch this, ready? Watch this. Verse 11. He who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. Now, hear what he said, right? He who, what? Made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, who is the man who made you well? You're looking at your Bibles, right? So you know that's not exactly what they said. They bleeped right over the fact. They did not even notice that the man said, I was made well. It didn't even register. It wasn't even on the radar screen that the man was sick for 38 years. The only thing they saw was a guy carrying his bed on the Sabbath. And so when he said, the man who made me well told me to pick up my bed and walk, they didn't even react to the fact that Jesus said, rise. They simply said, who is the one who told you to take up your bed and walk? That's all they cared about. That's all they cared about. And that's what man's attempts to justify themselves before God always do. It always causes people to miss the mark. The event, the encounter with Jesus, is that the man was made well. The only thing that mattered to the religious experts was that the guy, in their mind, was breaking their religious code. And the religious code kept them in blindness. So what about this guy? He didn't know who it was because Jesus had withdrawn because there were so many people there. Jesus didn't stay around. So look at this. Afterward, he found Jesus. Verse 14. You guys fall, You have to follow all your Bible here. You, you miss all these clever little things that I try to do. These little games I play with you. Look at verse 14. After he found Jesus in the temple? Yes or no? No. Afterward, Jesus found him. <laughs> Isn't that great? Jesus, after healing this guy, disappears because of the multitude, tells them, take up, he tells them, hey, pick up your bed and walk. Then disappear. Listen, like, like boss level 1000. Right? Jesus, is that, is that a thing? Or is that, is that, is that like 2014-ish or something like that? Listen, Jesus or that probably never was a thing. I probably totally butchered that. But you got the idea. Jesus says to the guy, what? Take up your bed and walk, and then disappears. And lets the, lets the Pharisees see that he's carrying his bed because he was healed. It goes through that whole point. Then Jesus disappears. Then Jesus goes and finds the guy. Because his encounter with Jesus isn't finished yet. Right? And Jesus says what? See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. So Jesus does what? He confronts the man's sin. He confronts the man's sin. And he calls for repentance. Implied is faith in himself. And verse 15 says... Verse 15 now, this is the changed guy. Here's the guy who encountered Jesus. When the day started, he was a guy laying there hopelessly. Before the day ended, he went and told everyone about Jesus. You see that? You see what an encounter with Jesus did? It brought him healing. But more than healing, it changed who he was. And made him someone who told others about the Lord. I don't want to linger too long on this one. Go to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew. Isn't that a great little story? Matthew fifteen twenty one.
the guy that Jesus healed by the pool of Bethesda would have been a Jew. Now Jesus is going to be encountered by a Gentile. Then Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And Bob made the point in our teaching at the youth group retreat that, that in last Sunday's sermon, what did Jesus say about, from, from here, I read to you, what did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 12, 11, 12, about Tyre and Sidon? He said, he said, if they would have seen the miracles that you see, they would have repented long ago. And then this passage of Scripture proves it. Right? Because he goes to Tyre and Sidon, and behold, a woman of Canaan. The significance of calling her a woman of Canaan by Matthew is to show you that she's not, what? A Jew. Right? She's a Canaanite. The Canaanites are the people that the Israelites in the ancient times drove by force out of the land. Right? So here's a Canaanite, a Canaanite woman, came from that region and cried out to him saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-oppressed. Pretty good understanding for a Gentile Canaanite woman. Right? You know, the, the guy by the pool of Bethesda, the Jewish guy, had no idea who was talking to him. The Canaanite woman in the region of Tyre and Sidon recognizes that this is the Lord, the son of David. The Lord speaks to his divinity. Son of David speaks to his Christhood, his Messiahship. Son of David, that's the one who was going to come and sit on David's throne and be the Messiah. So this Canaanite woman recognizes this. And Jesus, verse 23, being Jesus and always doing things way better than we would ever do them, doesn't even answer. His disciples came and urged him, saying, Lord, this woman recognizes who you are. That's awesome. Let's meet with her and talk with her for a while. Oh no. It says, they urged him, Lord, please, this woman is a nuisance and she's not even a Jew. Get her out of here. Send her away. So Jesus answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Right? So that's just a general statement of Christ's mission. That he had come to reach the Jews. And after he says that, verse 25 tells us, understand something, by the way, we made this point when we were talking, right? The, the woman is there hearing that. She's desperate. She's desperate because her daughter is severely demon-possessed. You'd be desperate too. She was desperate. And she's a Canaanite. And she knows the history of her people with the Jews. And she goes to Jesus begging. And then she's standing there, kneeling there, whatever she was. She's there when she hears the disciples say, get her out of here. She's listening to that. So Jesus makes this statement. She is undeterred. She came and she worshipped him. The idea that she worshipped him means that physically, positionally, her posture, she got down before him. That's the idea of she worshipped him, used in that context. She knelt before him, maybe she even laid down in front of him. They're all saying, get her out of here, and she's down on her face in front of him. And then he answers and says this. Can you imagine if somebody said this today? It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Whew. Boy, if somebody said that today, there'd be a firestorm on Twitter. And uh, I, mean, I mean, did you really just call everyone who wasn't a Jew dogs? Really? Did you say that? Uh, and then there would be everything. There would be... This phobia, that phobia, this ism, that ism, and there would be there would be Facebook posts and, and people on CNN and MSNBC and all the news channels would be like blasting Jesus for saying this, and he'd be accused of this, and he'd be accused. How dare he say that? Notice the woman's response. 
Just the first two words. Yes, Lord. Wow. Humility cuts through all... I wanted to use a very strong word that's not appropriate to use in front of people. Just, I'm delirious and I could always let them... Listen. Humility cuts through all of the nonsense. All of the meaningless drivel that could result from the fact that Jesus referred to non-Jews as dogs. She's not insulted. She says, yes, Lord. Yes. She acknowledges that what Jesus says is true. This woman's this woman is awesome, man. I know people aren't awesome, but this, this woman is says there's something about her that's so noble because she's humble. She's desperate. She knows, she realizes she has no place in what's really going on with Jesus. And she crawls in hum, a humility. She, Christ's own followers are saying, get her out of here. And Jesus says, not right for me to give the children food to the dogs. And she's like, yes, Lord. You know what, though? Even the little dogs, they eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And I want you to see something. Jesus answered and said to her, Oh woman, stop there. Listen, that's no small thing. Jesus doesn't just mechanically like say, Okay, you win. No. Jesus is moved by this. Jesus is impressed by this. This woman's faith moved the Son of God. How's that for an encounter with Jesus? Where's your faith? Do you believe, dare I say, almost defiantly believe? Are you laying hold of eternal life? Powerful. Oh, woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And he himself just said, I wasn't sent to anyone but to the lost sheep and the house of Israel. It's not good for me to give the children's food to the dogs. Oh, woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. Do you see the encounter with Jesus? And you see the faith of the woman and how the faith of the woman in her encounter with Jesus moved the Son of God. Where, where is our faith? How do, you, how do you exercise your faith? How do you live in your faith? How do you nurture your faith? How do you treat your faith? What place does your faith have in your life in comparison, in relation to everything else you're involved with? Is there anything more important than our faith? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How much are you in the word of God that your faith might grow? Oh, what an encouragement this is. So this woman is given what? Her desire. What is her desire? Her desire is that her demon-possessed daughter be made well. And it was granted to her in her encounter with Jesus. John chapter 9. We read a lot of this for time's sake. I'm not going to read a lot of it. And we know this story very well. It's another Sabbath healing. And here's Jesus doing it again. Just like he told the guy to pick up your bread, your bed and walk on the Sabbath. You know... The disciples asked him, verse 2 says, Who sinned, this guy or his parents? Right? Because at the pool of Bethesda, Jesus said, Don't sin anymore, lest the worst thing come upon you. Implying that there was some connection between his sin and his disease. In this particular case, so they asked, Now, who sinned, him or his parents, that he was born blind? And the answer is different. You can never pigeonhole these things. There's no automatic formula here. God is sovereign and that's it. 
Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. He was born blind for this purpose. For what was about to happen to him. Right? Now, what it says is, in verse 6, that Jesus spat on the ground, made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay, and he said, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Right? So here we have another poolside healing. Right? And again, what do we have? Just like Jesus could have just said to the guy by Bethesda, get up, you're healed. Jesus very easily could have said to this guy, go your way, you can see now. But he doesn't, does he? What does he do? He gives the guy something to do. He makes clay with his spit and with mud. That's a little weird. And, and you try to think about why. Is this some sort of a little test of his faith? Will he go and do this thing? Yeah, perhaps. You know? Uh, is, is it like deliberately like kind of weird? Is it is so the guy can have some kind of point of contact because he can't see? So since to, to uh, accommodate the fact that the guy can't see, Jesus kind of meets him where one of his other senses works. You know, his t- sense of touch. You know what I think is going on? I think it's just like at the pool of Bethesda, where Jesus said, pick up your bed and walk. Jesus gave the guy something to do because it was the Sabbath. And again, you have, just like, just like you have the religious oppression keeping the people sick in their sin, you also have religious oppression keeping people in what? Blindness. And here's a blind guy. And so Jesus gives the guy work to do on the Sabbath. See that? He spat on the ground, anointed the guy's eyes with the clay, and he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam. Oh, people would have seen that happen. So he went and washed, and he came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors of those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Isn't this he who sat and begged? Which is right where the religious system wanted him. Blind and begging. And lost. Some said it's him. Some said it's like him. He said, I am. I'm him. So they asked, how are your eyes open? And he said, a man called Jesus, made clay, anointed my eyes, said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And so I did. And I received my sight. Where is he? He said, I don't know. I mean, after all, he had never seen him, right? So it's not like he he hadn't seen him yet. So it's not like he can pick him out of the crowd. I don't know where he is. Verse 13. What's verse 13 say? They brought him who was formerly blind to the Pharisees. Now it was, and the first thing you're told is, now it was the Sabbath when Jesus, what? Made the clay and opened his eyes. So Jesus made clay on the Sabbath and he made the guy go wash on the Sabbath. And that's all they care about. Again, it's all they care about. Forget that a guy that never saw anything in his life could see. Forget that. What matters is, Jesus was making clay on the Sabbath. And this guy was washing his eyes on the Sabbath. How dare he? So the Pharisees asked him, he said, verse 15, He put clay on my eyes, I washed and I see. Therefore some of the Pharisees said, This man, look, this man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. What? I've never seen in my life and I can see now. And you say, he's not from God because he, because he made clay on the Sabbath and told me to wash my eyes. And I can see. You understand that, right? You understand that like, you know, you're, you're one of the very first humans that I have the pleasure of seeing. But you're telling me that this man is not from God because he told me to wash my eyes? How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division. So they asked him, what do you say about him? Because he opened your eyes. Simple honesty. He's a prophet. Yeah, I'd say so. But the Jews did not believe concerning him. They still didn't believe. In fact, now they did what people who are determined to not believe would typically do. You know what? You were never blind. That's what they did. They didn't believe that he had been blind and received his sight. So they called his parents. And the... The guy is a middle-aged man. So his parents are older. They asked them, Is this your son 
who you say was born blind, how then does he see? And they answered and said, We know this is our son, and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He's of age. Ask him. He'll speak for himself. Not, 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 and I don't want to be too hard on the parents, and I'll explain why in a minute, but we don't know how his eyes were opened. We don't know who opened his eyes. And you know what? I don't really care. My son has never seen his parents in his life. And he can see me now. And I don't care about your rules and your hocus pocus. Whoever did this must be from God. It's not what they said. You know what they said? He's old enough. You go ask him yourself. I don't want to be too hard on him because the reason they said that, his parents said these things because they feared their religious leaders, the Jews. They feared the Jews. You know why? Because the Jews had already agreed. See, the Jews knew about, they, they knew about Jesus. And they had already established a policy. They had had some business meetings in the synagogue and decided, anyone who confesses that this Jesus is the Messiah, they're out. And so parents whose son is looking at them for the first time can't even say, I don't know who did it, I don't know how he did it, and I don't even care. He did it. That's all that matters to me. And I'm going to find out more about him. And maybe he is the Messiah. And if he is the Messiah, I'm going after him. Go ahead, throw me out of the synagogue. This man healed the eyes of my son. He has power over that. See the conflict? You're mad at him because he rubbed some clay in my son's eyes? No. The religious oppression kept them down and kept them in fear. Jesus sets people free. When people encounter Jesus, he frees them from that by His grace and by His power to walk in the power of His Holy Spirit and follow Him and serve Him for His glory. And that's exactly what happened to this fellow. I, there's so many more things. You get the gist of the interaction. They end up throwing the guy out. And then... You know, verse 34, at the culmination of their conflict, you were born completely in sins, and you're teaching us! Right? Because the guy got real bold in front of him, started to say, like, man, you're asking me again what happened? What? Do you want to be his disciples too? You know? That, that, it's in there. You take my word for it. You read it for yourself. Right? So they threw him out. In verse 35, when Jesus heard they had cast him out, this is just like the other story, isn't it? Just like, you know, when Jesus heard they had cast him out, Jesus went and found him and said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, Listen to these words. Here's here's something that no one has ever said to this man in his life. You've seen him. Because he hasn't seen anything. And he hasn't seen anyone in his whole life. So Jesus says, you believe in the Son of God? And the guy's like, who is he that I may believe in him? You're looking at him. You're looking at him. He who had never looked at anything before. Isn't that great? Then he said what? Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Isn't that great? The man encountered Jesus and he not only went from blind to seeing physically, but he went from dead to alive spiritually. And he became a worshiper and a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. He encountered Jesus and was changed forever. There is of course zero chance that I will go through all six of these now. But I'm I'm not going to linger this beyond today. So I need to pick one of the last three to give to you. Uh, Let's just go with um, 
Luke chapter 24 and verse 13. Just so you know, the other two people or peoples that had their lives radically changed by encountering Jesus were number one, the woman who was caught in the act of adultery, right? And, and Jesus, you know, the one guy who had the right to stone her to death, walks up and says, you who are without sin, pick up the first stone. And of course they all fall away, you know, one after the other. And then Jesus says, where are your accusers? And she says, there are none. And he tells her, I don't accuse you either. Go, go and sin no more, right? There, 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 you know, forgiveness, redemption, completely changed. And then the other was the Lazarus family, right? I don't know what else to call them. But Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Lazarus, of course, you know, died and was uh, resurrected by Jesus. What maybe you don't know as well, or, or you should, is Martha and Mary. And they invite Jesus into their house. And they do what we do here in our church. You know, they have dinners. And you read through it. Martha and Mary are always hosting people in their house so they can listen to Jesus. It's kind of it's the same pattern. It's the same thing we try to do here several times a year, right? They're awesome, right? And it's like, but there's one of those dinners where like Martha gets wrapped up in the serving of the dinner and Mary is sitting there listening to Jesus and Martha pulls Jesus aside and says, Mary's just sitting there listening to you. Make her get up and help me. And Jesus said, one thing is needed. Martha, one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that. Heart, and it will not be taken away from her. Right? So, and the change you see is that the next time you see them, it is Martha, Martha, who first goes to Jesus when after Lazarus had died and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus says, your brother will live again, etc. It ends with Jesus, you know, Jesus, I am the resurrection and the life. You know, he who believes in me will never die. You know, yet, yet, though he die, yet he shall live. You know, John chapter 11. And then Jesus says, do you believe this? And she answers and says, yes, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come to the world. And she makes, this, she makes this incredibly clear, cogent, perfectly theological sound confession of who Jesus is. She went from, make Mary get up and help me, to one of the clearest confessions of Christ you will read in the Bible in John chapter 11. So that's the woman who was caught in adultery. That's the Lazarus family, Mary and Martha. But now the last ones that I want to look at in your presence here today are these two fellows who went for a walk. Why'd they go for a walk? Well, lots of stuff had happened in Jerusalem and you can't blame them for wanting to get away after what had happened. And we're told in Luke chapter 24 and verse 13, that two of them were traveling the same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all the things that had happened. What things? The things surrounding the arrest and trials and crucifixion of Jesus. And, you know, of course, now also that he had risen from the dead. So, it was that while they conversed in reason that Jesus drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. Right? The idea of the fact that their eyes were restrained, I think, has something to do with the sovereignty of God. Right? And that their eyes, they, they could not see him. It's not just that they were unable to see, they were restrained. They were held back from seeing and they didn't know him. And he said to them, this is again, Jesus just being awesome. Uh, that's just one of the greatest things you read in the Bible. Is you just have all these times. Have you seen it already today? Where Jesus is just awesome. He's just awesome in ways that like we would never think to be awesome. Why don't more people think that Jesus is awesome? You know? I mean, when you read these things, it's like, it's like they're walking along and they're talking about what happened to Jesus. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up on the road and says, What kind of conversation is this that you're having with one another? And you're walking and you're all sad. Yeah. Are you guys walking along and you're all sad? What, what's going on? Please explain it to me. And here's the best part. Then one of them answered, his name was Cleopas, and he said, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem and you've not known the things which have happened in these days? Verse 19, Jesus says, What things? <laughs> Isn't that great? Just a, yeah, like, like, like all the things they're talking about happened to him. Right? And he's like, What things? What are you 
please tell me, what is it you're talking about? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were, look at this, we were hoping that it was going to be him who was going to redeem Israel. So they, they didn't get it yet. They loved Jesus, but they were among the crowd that thought that maybe this is the Messiah, but when he was crucified, they realized, nope, I guess he wasn't. Right? And Jesus is getting this great you know, insight from listening to these guys talk. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things have happened. Yes, certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they didn't find his body. They came saying that they also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they didn't see. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? In other words, don't you understand that the Bible, the Old Testament, has taught for centuries that Messiah, when he comes, is not coming to do what you expect him or want him to do. Messiah is coming and he must suffer these things in order to save people. This is what had to happen. Don't doubt, don't doubt that this guy you're talking about, which was him, but they didn't know that yet. Don't doubt that this guy you're talking about was the Messiah because he suffered and died. The scriptures tell us that that's exactly what was supposed to happen to the Messiah. And then verse 27, beginning at Moses. So he starts at Moses. What's Moses? The law. All good presentations of the gospel start there. They start with the law because the law shows us our sin. We start with Moses. And Moses tells us what? Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet. Honor your father and your mother. Don't worship false idols, etc., etc., etc. And it brings us to a, a conviction of our sin. And then all the prophets. What do the prophets do? The prophets point ahead to redemption from sin, which was coming in the form of the Messiah. So Jesus starts with Moses and the prophets, and he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Listen, they got seven miles to walk. We have plenty of time, fellows. Hey, you worry about me preaching for a long time. Let's go for a seven-mile walk someday. And I'll, just, and I'll just preach the whole time. Right? And my knee's really bad, so seven miles is going to take a long time to walk. All right? So then they drew near the village, and he indicated that he would have gone far. Hey, I'm not done, boys. Let's keep going. As Jesus said. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it's toward evening. The day is far spent. And he went to stay with them. Came to pass, he sat down on the table and something familiar happened. He blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. Boom! Then their eyes are open. And then they realize, it's you! <gasps> Poof. Gone. Soon, as soon as he brings them, listen, as soon as he brings them to the point where they recognize who he is, he vanishes. You know why? Because once you realize... That it's all about Jesus. Once you realize that Jesus is the Savior. Once you realize that only in Jesus is there salvation. There is nothing else. Nothing else. And so Jesus vanishes and they say this. Didn't our heart burn within us. While he talked with us on the road. And while he opened the scriptures to us. Doesn't the word of God do that? When you come to it humbly, when you come to it attentively, and when you come to the Word of God in faith, doesn't it do that? Doesn't it make your heart burn inside? Yes, it does. Yes. Yes, it does. How, do I, how, do, how can I even describe that? I don't know. That's the best description of it I've ever heard. It makes your heart burn inside you. You just start to get sucked into it. And man, it just starts to take over you. And they're listening to not just some guy. They're listening to Jesus himself expound the scriptures which were his and were about him. I mean, he, he was the one who gave them, and he was the subject of them. And he's like, what? And he's expounding, and they're just burned, burned, raging. And then, you know, they get to the, please don't go anymore, stay with us, the day's over. Stay. So they sit down, they break bread, <gasps> poof, gone. Awesome. Now, anyone ever gone for a walk? Yes. Anyone ever gone for a long, I know that in some of the better, more fitter days of my life, which are not right now, 
But in the past, when I've been doing it the way I should be doing it, and I'm walking, and I'm, and I'm doing it, and I, I can walk pretty fast. You wouldn't believe that for a guy my size, but I can actually move pretty fast. And I could walk, I could walk close to four miles, I think. It was three miles, maybe it was, in an hour. Like, like, like if you walk on the track and you kind of time yourself, right? So these guys walked for hours. And, and when I walk, I would like walk for exercise. So I'm like, like power, like kind of walking. These guys were casually strolling and talking. It's hard to talk while you walk. Did you know that? You walk for a long time, you start to talk. Right? So listen, these guys were out for a long, long, long seven mile walk. They were hungry. They were tired. The day was far spent. So the day was over. When they realized it was Jesus, note the words in verse 33, note the words, that very hour. In other words, that very hour, you know what they did? They went for another seven mile walk. Right back to where they were. Because what their feet felt like, what the time of the day was, none of it mattered. They had come to know the truth concerning the Messiah and they encountered Jesus in this magnificent way and they were no longer the same. It didn't matter. Their feet could have been falling off. They got up and they made their way back so they could tell their friends what had happened. So many times you see that. Someone encounters Jesus. They come to know Him by faith. And then all of a sudden you see them running around telling everyone about Jesus. Hint, hint, hint. That ought to be in place in our own lives. Well, so that's a little sampling of what we learned at the youth group retreat. But I want to leave you with this. What's your... Have you encountered Him and come to faith in Him that you have received salvation? Do you recognize that Moses, God's law, convicts us all as sinners? I have lied. I have stolen. I have... I have, I have coveted other people's things. Uh, I've never murdered anyone, but I've hated people in my heart. I've never worshipped the statue. Actually, I have, back before I knew the Lord. Yep, that was part of the religion I was part of. So yeah, I did that. But whatever, you get the point. So many sins in my life, I have no way of even counting them or ever making up for them. Moses condemns me. But the prophets show me that there is hope. For redemption. And Jesus is the fulfillment of those prophets. The Lord Jesus came. He lived and walked this perfect, miraculous, wonderful, sinless life. And then offered himself as a sacrifice for your sins. Have you encountered him? Christ Jesus, the Son of God, died for your sins and rose from the dead. And if you'll humble yourself, repent, which just means to acknowledge you've broken his law. You can't save yourself. You know your sin matters. It's not just some small thing. You stand condemned before God. Humble yourself. Turn to Jesus. Believe on Him. That means doesn't mean just to think that it's real in your head. It means actually trust Him with all of your heart. Trust in Jesus. Come to Jesus and once and for all, trust Him with all of your heart. Have you encountered Him like that? And if you're here and you have encountered Him like that, praise God for His grace. Do you encounter Him like that then on an ongoing basis in your life? You should. You should. We're all going to encounter Him one day. Even those who died in their wickedness will be raised one day to encounter Him. Those who are Christians, by His grace, will encounter Him face to face one day. We'll see Him as He is and we will stand before His judgment seat. To be judged for the things we say, the things we do, everything we've done since we've been redeemed. We'll even be rewarded by Him for the things we've done in His service. The Bible says that we're saved by His grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It's His gift. It's not of our works, lest anyone should boast. For we are created in, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved by good works. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works. That God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. How are you living your life? Are you encountering Jesus? Are you reading the word? Are you meditating on his word? Are you praying? Are you in fellowship? Are you committed to church? Are you committed to service? Are you committed to doing the things that the Lord has charted out for you to do? Is your day-to-day experience 
an encounter with Jesus. That's what we challenge the youth group with. That's what I challenge you with today. And I challenge myself. Stand up with me and let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, thank you for sending Jesus, your holy and only begotten Son. Lord, my prayer is that everyone here, in the sound of my voice listening to this, Lord, would know you, be known by you. Dear Lord Jesus, that we would encounter you and receive salvation, and that we would encounter you day by day and walk with you, walk worthy of the calling in which we have been called. Please help this body of believers, Lord, to love one another, to be strong in grace, to be strong in the Spirit, to be strong in the Word, to be strong in service, to be strong in Christ. Build, I pray, Lord God, your church all over the whole world, even in this little place here, if it fulfills your purposes. You are God, great and greatly to be praised in all the earth. And we thank you for this time we've had here today. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.